From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. Peter Thiel is one of the most fascinating people I've ever spoken to on this podcast. I remember this one interview he did a few years ago with the New York Times, uh, where one of the questions they asked him, do you like Star Trek better or Star Wars better? And, you know, people have their opinions on Star Trek and Star Wars, but he had a real reason for his opinion. He said Star Wars, of course, because Star Trek, everything you get for free, and that's communist. And Star Wars, the the whole story revolves around uh, this debt between Han Solo and Jabba the Hutt, and and there's actual capitalism in Star Wars. So that was his answer. He's he's really thought out the reasons he does things. I mean, he was a lawyer at a top-notch law firm, quit that, wanted to be an entrepreneur, started PayPal, made about $70 million from that, and then became the first investor in Facebook, made billions from that then started Palantir, made billions from that. And he's gone on, who knows how many ways he's made more billions and billions of dollars. And this podcast, I'm re-releasing it. I I doubt anyone has listened to this. It was several years ago. You can't even find it in the catalog right now, but it's, I just listened to it. It's as evergreen as it ever was. And 
it's really valuable to see, hear, really think about how one of the most successful people ever thinks. And here he is. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Hey, Peter, this is James Altucher. Hi, how are you doing? Good, Peter. Thanks so much for, for taking the time. I, I'm really excited for this interview. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Oh, no problem. So I'm going to introduce you, but first I want to mention, uh, congratulations, your book, Zero to One, Notes on Startups or How to Build the Future. And Peter, we're just going to dive right into it. That's awesome. I want to actually like break down the title almost word by word. But before I do that, I want you to tell me what the most important thing that's happened to you today, because I feel like every other day you're starting like a Facebook or a PayPal or a SpaceX or whatever. What happened to you today that you looked at? Like, what interesting things do you do on a daily basis? Well, it's uh, it's every every it, it it. I don't know if there's a single thing that's the same from day to day, but uh, there there's always uh, an an inspiring number of great technology ideas, great science ideas that uh, people are working on. And so, even though there are many different reasons that I have concerns about the future and trends that I don't like in, in our society and in the larger world, one of the things that always gives me hope is how much people are still trying to do, how many new technologies they're trying to build. You know, spent today uh, looking at a variety of uh, financial technology opportunities this morning and met with uh, and, and was sort of brainstorming in that space, which you know is an area that's uh, that where there's probably a lot of opportunity for reinventing what banks are, what finance does even though it also has uh, the challenge that it's going to face more regulatory headwinds in the decade ahead. So what's an example? Like you got, you were brainstorming, like how do you, how do you uh, run a brainstorming session and, and, and what does it mean? Well, I, financial met, uh, technology? I met a guy who was a founder of another uh, finance tech company called uh, Wonga in the UK, which is a sort of payday loans business. And then uh, there's sort of a question, you know, what, what we could be, what, what one could do from there. And we just, we just sort of, we just surveyed, we just compared notes on uh, what we thought uh, was happening in the financial technology space, and uh, and it was it was extremely fruitful uh, fruitful conversation. Um, and you know, there's always sort of a question: what's working? Are there certain models that you can look at to copy? And then there's of course always a sense that once people are already doing things, uh, you have to uh, you you can't quite do it. So it's, uh, the, you know, one of the critical things in in starting businesses is this need to do something new, different, fresh, strange. This is sort of the zero to one ethos. Well, and and I want to I want to get to that. So your your point in the book, and and first off, just as as intro, I'm talking to Peter Thiel. You're the founder of PayPal. You're the first investor in Facebook. You've invested in I don't know dozens of other companies, including SpaceX, uh, Palantir's one of your biggest investments. Uh, all very impressive stuff. And the book Zero to One, I I feel it almost. It, it it blew my mind. It almost turned up the whole uh, mechanics of starting up a company upside down. Because I think, as you point out in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, you basically say that over the decades, uh, entrepreneurs, particularly lately, have become more risk averse. So rather than come up with a completely new innovative technology, they want to incrementally improve on old technologies and then just, I'm going to be extra cynical. Then they just want to kind of flip or sell their company and, and move on to the next one. 
And zero to one sort of says, look, we've got to we've got to start with zero and build build a monopoly so that this is how we take over the world. Build a monopoly and then scale it if you want to take over the world. Yes. Um, well, well, certainly my uh, my book is an exhortation against incrementalism, against uh, small incremental businesses. You do not want to start the 100th online pet food company or the 5,000th restaurant in San Francisco. Uh, uh, extreme competition, extreme undifferentiation is not synonymous with capitalism. I think with the, the, there's sort of many myths that I take on, but perhaps the biggest myth is this idea that capitalism and competition are synonyms. I believe that capitalism and competition are antonyms. A capitalist is someone who's in the business of accumulating capital. A world of perfect competition is a world where all the capital gets competed away. And, uh, and, and I think the, the greatest idea in business that does not get articulated is that uh, great companies um, do something unique and because of this unique thing that they do have monopoly-like uh, pricing power. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, so, and so there's sort of a question, how can one go about creating a, a new business that, uh, that creates a valuable monopoly for oneself and, and for the rest of society? Because it, if, you, if you've done something new, it's... Uh, it also creates value for for all the consumers. And, and Peter, just just to mention, I feel like this is sort of a, a philosophical way to look at startups, but you can also look at like like Facebook, for instance. You can argue was an incremental improvement over other companies like MySpace and Friendster, but it started off as a monopoly on like Harvard students. So that's a, the monopoly way to look at it. Yeah, although there's always it's always a question of what counts as genuinely new. I would argue that uh, Facebook genuinely solved the identity problem because it was about people's real identities on the internet. Uh, it was not about fake identities or alternate identities, which, you know, um, MySpace started in Los Angeles. Its core audience was uh, people in Hollywood who pretended to be someone other than who they were. Um, Facebook started at Harvard and it was about people representing themselves accurately on the internet. And so much of the early uh, attempts at social networking had been about creating alternate uh, worlds, virtual realities in which maybe I'd pretend to be a dog and you'd pretend to be a cat and we'd sort of interact in some strange new way in this different medium. And uh, Facebook actually was the first company to mirror the real identities of the real world onto the onto the internet, which gives it both its power, it raises some of the concerns people have about privacy because uh, because it is so real. Yeah. So, so it's interesting, like a lot of the uh, interviews you've given in the past, you sort of say technology, uh, came to a standstill, like in the late sixties and, and you and I are about the same age. You're about, uh, three months older than me. And I, I sort of feel like when we were born, everything was finished. Like the highway system was done. Plumbing was done. Every, all the tunnels and bridges were finished. Computers were made and they were just getting a little bit better every day. And, you know, even the Internet, like, you know, was sort of created around 1972 or so and then just got better and better, but nothing blindingly new. And, and you point out in one interview that, you know, even like Twitter is just a simple Web page, really. Uh, so so where do you think the next kind of um, huge technology innovations could happen? Well, I'm, I'm a little bit more positive on the history of computers and the internet in the last 40 years. So I, I do think there's been a lot of innovation in that area. Um, certainly some of the foundational technologies were developed in the 50s and 60s. Uh, but I do think 
Um, I do think um, a lot of the applications, whether it's web browsers or search engines or social uh, networking sites, I would I would consider as genuine innovations that have happened in in, in recent decades. Uh, the story of innovation I I tell is one that uh, we've been in a world where there was innovation in bits but not in atoms, and so um, we've had a lot of innovation in computers, not so much outside of information technology. So there's been less innovation in transportation or energy or even um, biotechnology, medicine, nanotechnology, space travel. All the futuristic technologies people envisioned in the 50s and 60s have done, have done, have done less well. You know, when one looks at the decades ahead from here, the straightforward prediction is to say that the computer revolution will continue. And I, I, I do think that's, that's true. It's, uh, it, is not, it's, it will continue to improve living standards, not as dramatically um, as one might hope. And so I think it's been an era of relative stagnation the last 40 years because we've only had computers and nothing else. Um, and then the, the more optimistic hope is that uh, we're, we will at some point uh, start to see uh, information technology, uh, bit, the world of bits, get reintegrated with the world of atoms and that we will so that we will see things like uh, um, genomics, where there's a potential of biology becoming an information science. And when we, when we think of biological systems as informational, we will be able to do far more than we could under the, under the existing paradigms. Or, uh, like like what? Like what, what does that mean, really? Well, if you think of a cell as a computer that can be programmed, there probably are all sorts of ways that one could program it to turn off diseases, to self-destruct. If you have a virus in it, you could figure out, uh, um, I, you know, that there's sort of, it would give us a mastery over biological systems, analogous to what we now have over computational systems. And I think that's a way that you could have tremendous uh, progress on some of these areas where a biotechnology has been relatively stuck in recent decades. So again, this is not, I'm not certain this will happen, but, but I think that's the, uh, that's the optimistic thing that, that could happen. I fundamentally believe that the, the sort of slowdown we've had is not because we've run out of ideas or it's impossible to do anything new. It's not that nature is such that all the low-hanging fruit has been picked and there's no low-hanging fruit left. I think it is more of a cultural problem. It is that we are not trying as hard or we've regulated technology to death. Um, and, and so there was never any low-hanging fruit. It was always of intermediate height and we always had a reach for it uh, to get to the next level. And I think we've not been uh, trying as hard in, in recent decades. And why do you think, not as a society, because I think a lot of your analysis is societal, but why do you think individually, like what, what, what qualities do we need to cultivate as an individual to reach for those intermediate or higher hanging fruit? I think there are a number of different ones, but you have to be willing to persevere on doing something that's, that's not conventionally seen as working. You know, I start my book with this question, tell me something that's true that uh, almost nobody agrees with you on. Uh, and that's like an intellectual version. But then there's, you know, what great business is nobody doing or what, what important research are people not working on? And, um, and we've, we've, we've somehow become very egalitarian, very incrementalist, where uh, we take our cues from other people around us and we take as what is possible what other people are already doing. And, and so that's where you sort of end up going in, in circles. Um, you know, the Silicon, one of the strange things in Silicon Valley is that so many of these successful entrepreneurs suffer from a mild form of Asperger's uh, or some, something like that. Um, 
And I always think of this as an incredible indictment of our society. What sort of society is it where if you don't have Asperger's, you will pick up on all these subtle social cues that will discourage you from pursuing creative original ideas and that will tell you not to do it? I think we have the ideas, we have the ability to do them, and we we can't let ourselves be uh, discouraged by the conventional system which tells us not to pursue things. It's really funny because there's almost like an evolutionary psychology component to this, which is that we think incrementally because we're concerned all the time about status. So you're not necessarily concerned about your status vis-a-vis the alpha male. You're concerned about your status vis-a-vis the person who's directly higher than you. So you just want to make incremental improvements till you're directly higher than them. Whereas someone with like an Asperger's like quality, their chances are they're going to be out of the whole chain and they're not going to have descendants his, you know, a million years ago. So, so these evolutionary characteristics we inherit now in, in terms of our ability to invent, say, I mean, you, you look at a lot of the people, even not just now, but a hundred years ago, people inventing things were totally, you know, outside the norm of, of conventional society. Yes. And it's certainly the, uh, Archaic context was one where you, know, you had like 150 people in a tribe, and so there are certain uh, ways in which you'd be conformist, certain ways you'd deviate that make sense within 150 people. And we're now dealing in a global society of 7 billion, where maybe the conformity of what the other millions of people or billions of people are doing is just overwhelming. And so, uh, and so I, th- I think maybe the, the calibration is, is very different. Uh, people, I, I, I do think... I think the communications revolution on the whole is a good thing. I think connecting the world is a good thing. But I, I wonder whether it has had this effect of uh, of uh, discouraging people too quickly because you quickly get feedback. Someone else has already worked on this. Someone may have already thought about this. And when you get that feedback, uh, you, you stop trying it. So we, we have a, we're in a world full of anti-theories, of theories that tell you why you can't do things. And uh, and so I think a lot of um, a lot of potentially good ideas get shot down a little bit too quickly. Well, I, I love one of your first rules where you, you're, you're describing kind of the, the opposite of what the conventional rules are. So you, you have four rules that are the opposite of the conventional rules. And one is um, where, you know, people should be encouraged to form a monopoly and have a proprietary technology. And you have what you call the 10 X rule, which, or what I call the 10 X rule, which, um, you basically say a, a company should start when they have a technology that's 10 times better than their, let's say their closest competitor. So this way they're so far ahead, it's almost like a monopoly. And I think that's a very powerful way to look at it. Just in any meaningful dimension, certainly there's a technological dimension. You could say Amazon started with more than 10 times as many books as the next largest bookstore. So that that made it very differentiated and very unique. You know, And of course, when you have a real technological breakthrough, then you just have something that didn't exist at all. So you could say the Apple iPhone was a smartphone that worked before that there had been no smartphone that worked. In some sense, that was infinitely better than what existed before on, on, if you define it that way. I wonder if it applies also, not just of course to companies, but to anything to like, you know, if you write a book, it makes sure it's 10 times better than, you know, the other books in your category. Or if you make a work of art is, is, Andy Warhol, 10 times better than the artist that came before him. And that's why he blew up so big. Uh, I wonder if that kind of, uh, that 10 X rule can be applied to anything. Uh, I, 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 I think it's, I like to apply it in context where you could at least have a axis on which you can measure things. I think it's difficult to measure 
what makes art 10 times as good or, or a book 10 times as good. Uh, and so in something like art or writing, it's always a bit more qualitative. Right. Uh, but yes, I think I think the the qualitative version of the question is is nevertheless important. Is um, you know how is this differentiated in a way that's that's positive? What are you saying that other people are not saying? And if if you're not saying something that's that's um, that's you know meaningfully different from what other people are saying, maybe there's not that much point to it. You know, and it, and it's interesting. What I think I really do think in the beginning of your book, what was so interesting to me was the way, you know, you pose the monopoly versus competition question. Like we're almost brought up to think that monopolies are not so good for society. And, and you come up with a, a really great argument that monopolies are essential for innovation because in, in a sense, a monopoly is kind of storing up innovation for competition in the future. And, uh, uh, so that's why you're, you encourage people when they're starting a business, obviously you can't be a monopoly over the entire United States, but find your small market where you can be a monopoly. And I think that's a very powerful concept. Well, well, there's several different concepts. I, I think, I think one, one concept is, is certainly that, um, that if you're in a world of perfect competition, you will never make any uh, profits on, on what you're doing. And so the key thing when you start a new technology business is to create something that has value to other people and then to capture some fraction of the value you create. So you create X dollars in value, you capture Y percent of X. And X and Y are independent variables. And one of the, you know, one of the disturbing uh, things in science and technology is that in many cases, people have created incredibly valuable uh, things for society, but uh, they could capture no more than zero percent of it. Um, this is true of a lot of science, a lot of basic science. But like biotech? Enough, you know, the Wright brothers came up with the first airplane, but they didn't make a fortune in, in air travel. Or um, Most inventors find it very hard to capture any fraction of the value. And so it's, uh, you, you really need to think about both how do you create something val valuable, and then how, how can you go about capturing uh, some, of the, some fraction of the value you create. Um, our, our legal system is very schizophrenic on this question of monopoly. On the one hand, it's seen as something bad that's to be regulated. And then uh, in other instances, such as with patents or intellectual property, it's something we actually celebrate and protect. Um, and I think, um, I think great technology companies are like, um, it's, it's the same idea as behind a patent or intellectual property where you're uh, doing something new. And so it's not Monopoly is not artificial scarcity, but it creates something new and therefore creates plenty where nothing had existed before. Do you think, do you think part of the um, sort of stance on monopoly and competition comes from uh, the Puritan ethic that in order to um, get some value for ourselves, we need to compete in order to justify our reward? I, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's narrowly Puritan. I, I think that, uh, I think we, uh, I, you know, the, the word already in the time of Shakespeare, the word ape meant both primate and to imitate. And so there is something very deep in, in the human. And, you know, this is how we learn language. We, we learn culture by copying our parents, the people around us. Um, and so imitation is sort of very endemic to the human condition. And I think, uh, I think that uh, competition always involves uh, a lot of imitation because you're, um, the people you're competing with are people 
where you're imitating them. They want the same thing. You're trying to do the same thing as they're doing. And, uh, and so I do think that's, that uh, this, this tendency towards imitation is, is, is very, very deep. Um, and that's, that's one of the reasons people are so attracted to competition. They, they find it strangely validating. If, if you, know, you don't know what you want, you look to what other people want, you copy what they want, everybody ends up copying everybody else. Um, and this is how you end up with the hyper-tracked education system where it's the most ferocious competition from K through 12 for all the same slots at the same few elite universities uh, later. Um, and uh, and that's, that's sort of a paradigm of, of, um, of runaway competition. Yeah, it's interesting because ultimately, like look at you, you went to Stanford, then you went to law school, and then um, you didn't become a lawyer. Why, why compete against you know the billion other lawyers out there? Well, it was certainly um, certainly my personal. I, I always like to say that I had sort of a rolling quarter life crisis from age eighteen to twenty eight, where I had been tracked in all these ways, and I gradually came to believe that the tracks were not the right things to do. And 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 probably the 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 the, the sort of the, the really cathartic moment was when I worked at a large law firm in New York, where from the outside, everybody wanted to get in because it was like it was seen as this prestigious job. You'd be set for life. And on the inside, people, uh, you know, everybody wanted to get out people, but people had no idea what else to do. And, uh, you know, when I when I left after seven months, three days, one of the one of the people down the hall told me that uh, he couldn't believe I was leaving. He didn't have he didn't realize it was possible to escape from Alcatraz, which was odd. since You know, you only had to go out the front door, but uh, but psychologically, uh, people could not imagine anything else because so much of um, their meaning of their identity was defined around competing with other people. And were, were you and, scared when you walked out that door that, uh, that last time? I was, I, you know, I was certain it was the right thing to do, but as I came into office that day, it was like, am I out of my mind to be doing this? Nobody quits their job this quickly. What will people think? Uh, like were your parents uh, upset at you? My parents realized that I was very unhappy. And so they were, they were confused, but they weren't that upset, you know, but yeah, I, th I think in, in most cases, uh, you'd be encouraged to continue doing this in, in all sorts of ways that are probably questionable. And I, th I think if you sort of take this as a microcosm for our society writ large, I think the, you know, the crisis of 2008 can be understood as a point where tracked careers, simply copying existing forms had somehow become exhausted. It had sort of run its course. And we're now in this very perplexing time in our society where there's a need for a reset. There's a need to do something new. And, um, and we've not done this for, I think, 40 years in a way. Um, you know, I think it's been, it's been this increasingly tracked, increasingly uh, static society for 40 years. And so the need to do something new is very perplexing, very strange. There's a way in which people are trying to do this in Silicon Valley. There are ways in which they're trying to do it in other contexts, but it's uh, it is it is radically divergent from the way people have been taught as kids as, through college, and uh, and so uh, it's you know we, we we have we're very schizophrenic on this. We we celebrate entrepreneurship in theory, but in practice, it's not something people really want to do.
I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You make this very interesting thought in the book that, you know, all these businessmen quote Sun Tzu's The Art of War all the time. But what they're really, the reason they're really doing it is because of competition, but that's not real business. Uh, it's the competition that's like war and business is more, almost more cooperative in some sense. Like, you know, you, you, you know, one of the things that was really great about your career is not so much your particular arc, but then the arcs of all the people around you. So you started PayPal and then all of these ex employees of PayPal went on to form other companies. And so what, what kind of characteristics of PayPal led to this PayPal mafia? Well, it was, um, you know, it's, it's always, it's always hard to know exactly what, what was in the DNA. Pay- PayPal was probably, um, the single, um, 
the single company in Silicon Valley that produced the most entrepreneurs, most startups, uh, with the possible exception of uh, Fairchild Semiconductor itself, which was sort of um, right. from which all the uh, great semiconductors came out and the companies came out in the late 60s and, and, and 70s, most notably Intel. Um, and uh, and so PayPal, uh, we've had probably of the, there have been something like seven companies started by ex PayPal people worth over a billion dollars in the like last which ones uh, like like YouTube. What, what are the YouTube, companies? Yelp, LinkedIn, Tesla, SpaceX, Palantir, and and Yammer. Uh, YouTube was the first one to really succeed, and then there was has been a whole series of them. Um, and I think um, you know I think that we're we're I think we had a very you know we 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 had a uh, we had a lot of strong personalities. We found a way for it to work. It was a uh, I think the learning at PayPal um, was that uh, it was it was a tough business to build. We were we had a lot of competition, a lot of uh, regular uh, you know there's a lot of regulatory challenges, uh, um, uh, but we sort of figured out ways to overcome them. And and so the the lesson at PayPal was that you could build a great company, but it was hard. It was not easy. It was not impossible. Uh, I think that when people come out of super successful companies like a Google or a Microsoft, um, it's often, they've often experienced business as too easy and, uh, and then they're set up to fail. Whereas if you come out of a company that's completely blown up and failed, um, you often learn to lower your, uh, um, set your sights lower and your expectations lower. And so, uh, so I think failure um, is also somewhat overrated in our society because uh, um, you know, it actually does damage people. So I think PayPal was this intermediate case where people learned that it was um, hard but possible to build a great business. And, um, and, and, then, you know, the, and then a lot of great friendships were forged, and uh, these were the bases for starting these new companies. Uh, one of the questions I always like asking people when they come in to, to start a business is, uh, is what was the prehistory? How did they meet? How long have they known each other? How long have they worked together? Because I think a, a lot of these great companies are not just solo efforts of a you know of a single a godlike person who does does everything, but uh, they are they are small teams that that really work together well and uh, and so the prehistory is important. Uh, you know if you if you met your co-founder, if you you know it's like if it's like uh, you know if you get married to someone you meet at the slot machines in Las Vegas, it, you might hit the jackpot, but it's probably a bad idea. These things hmm. work often better when there's a reasonably long prehistory. You know, your roommates in college. You spent years talking about how to build a company. You know each other's strengths and weaknesses. You understand the, the proper division of labor when you're you're starting the business. You're able to speak to one another honestly about what's going on, and um, and uh, and I think PayPal provided that sort of a prehistory for uh, for all the people who went on to start these companies. And you point out, like for employees and for co-founders and so on, everyone should know what they're doing. Like it should be clearly defined. What is your one thing that you're in charge of? And I think a lot of startups don't have that and it gets very ugly fast. Well, it's the, uh, the, 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 the way I describe this is if you're a, if you're a psychopathic boss and you'd like the people working for you to fight each other for nothing at all, the, the formula for getting people to fight each other is to tell two people to do the exact same thing. And so, <clears throat> and so I do think uh, I do think um, you get maximal cooperation 
when people's roles are defined in very differentiated ways so that, uh, so that um, uh, people don't see their success as contingent on someone else's failure. You will succeed if you do your job. Someone else will succeed if they do their job, and their job is different from your job, so you can both succeed, and it's not, it's not negatively uh, correlated from one, one person to the other. Um, in, in a startup, uh, it is true that the, the roles are very fluid, and so there is a tendency for uh, the roles to change. There's always a risk that they, uh, they shift in ways where they tend to overlap more. And so one of the critical things one needs to do as a founder or manager in an early stage startup is to continuously readjust the org chart, continuously redefine people's roles um, so that they remain differentiated all the way through. In, in large companies, the roles are normally differentiated but it's normally just this sort of chronic bureaucracy where there's always sort of this low-level unhappiness that's endemic to the organization. Um, startups tend to be sort of much more acute and manic, and uh, and and you need to be you know the ups are very high, the lows are very low, and you need to make sure that at the low points um, you don't have everybody uh, that it doesn't blow up like it might in a, in a primitive archaic tribe. Well, and part of that is because you're, you're, you mentioned in the book, you're also hiring people you like and you want to spend time with. So to some extent, there's a, a, a family or friend component to uh, recruiting that happens in a startup that doesn't happen in a large corporation. Yes, it's, it's, I, I'm, I'm in favor of working with, with your friends. Um, I, I know a lot of people think that's a bad idea, but I, I do think that, uh, I do think it's critical to find people with whom, uh, um, that you know, you, you, it's it's an intense period, and so you want to. It's it's it matters a lot who you're with, who you're working with, and you want you want you want the people to be fundamentally aligned and on the same page, and and hopefully you can structure in a way where people will be even better friends at the end than that they were at the beginning. And of course, this is where startups mirror kind of the the outside world of startups. Like basically, you should always spend time with people who are your friends as opposed to people you don't like. And applying, it's funny how big corporations forget this idea. And I think that's why, uh, as you say, it's endemic to corporations that people are kind of unhappy in general uh, at, at larger corporations because they forget that people just like to spend time with people they legitimately like. One of the uh, one of the rules I, I was I, I was told once uh, one of the observations was that you could predict employee turnover if if someone had three really good friends at a company they would never they would almost never leave if they had no good friends much more likely to turn over so I think one of the highest predictors of sort of um, losing talented people is whether or not they have great friends so I don't think you need to just hire people you're friends with or anything like that but I think Hiring people that you'd like to become friends with or could become friends with is uh, is uh, is certainly a good question to ask. So 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 let me ask you this: when when Mark Zuckerberg first walked through your door with the idea of Facebook, and Facebook was obviously a small company at the time, he was a Harvard student. What what did you see? What what lit up your eyes? Well, it um, it was, you know, I mean, it was already scaling pretty fast. They had a, they were already at 20 colleges. They had a hundred thousand people. Um, <clears throat> um, all they needed was uh, money to buy more computers to get to more users. So, so it's generally a rule that, uh, when all you need is computers, um, 
you need the money just for computers because you have so much demand. That's that's a that's 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 a pretty good investment. It was certainly a group of people that had been friends at Harvard for for quite a while. So you you had you did have that part of the prehistory. It was it was technically talented, which is not true of a lot of the social networking sites at the time. <clears throat> and so they were going to be they they succeeded in building it in a way that was scalable, which had been a problem with some of the earlier companies like Friendster. Um, and and so MySpace. And so there were sort of a number of different things that uh, that checked out. Uh, I'm always, as an investor, I always like to ask the contrarian question. So the, the contrarian question for investors, you know, what, why is it that this is a great company? That and what do other people not see in this? Why do other people not see this? So uh, so you know, the, certainly, Facebook was was a great company since you know, it was it was growing like crazy. The valuation was reasonable, and the uh, and um, they only needed money to buy more computers because there was so much demand. I think people were missing it in the 2004 to 2006 period. Um, one of the biases investors have is always to just um, invest in things they themselves use. And so since Facebook at the time was a college site, and there are basically no investors who are attending college, it was uh, systematically underestimated and how, uh, <clears throat> how intense the use case was, was um, not appreciated by investors, probably really until 2007 when Facebook uh, was opened beyond college students to the larger public. And did did uh, did Zuckerberg already have a plan in place? Like he he knew eventually he was going to extend this to businesses <laughs> and then to everybody. Uh, it was, you know, I, I wouldn't say it was fully worked out in all detail, but but there was certainly this um, this extremely expansive plan from from very early on, and uh, and so you know it's. People always talk about these companies like it was it was random, it was unpredictable. We had no idea what happened. That's the politically correct way to talk about it. But I, I, I do think there was there was sort of a, a sense all the way through that, that Facebook uh was the potential to be this incredibly big and incredibly important medium. Uh the the, the most critical uh, decision I believe still in the, in the history of Facebook was in July of 2006, when Yahoo offered us a billion dollars, and um, at the time the company had maybe still just college students. Uh, we had maybe 35 million in revenues, 40 million in revenues in 07, uh, in 06, and um, no profits. We had this board meeting on a Monday morning. There were three of us on the board: myself, Jim Breyer, another investor, and, and Mark Zuckerberg. And both Jim and I probably thought we should just take the billion dollars. To be uh, to be fair. Zuckerberg was 22 years old at the time. He owned a quarter of the company. Uh, I started the meeting by saying, you know, this is going to be a 10-minute meeting. Uh, we we're obviously just going to turn it down. You know, the two of us then said, well, we should actually talk about this a lot, a little bit more. You know, a billion dollars is a lot of money. If you make $250 million, there's a lot you can do with the money. There's a at lot the age can, of 22? At the age of 22, there's a lot you can do with the money. You can invest it. You can do other things. There's a lot that can go wrong with this company. And, um, and, you know, Zuckerberg said, well, you know, I don't really know what I do with the money. I'd probably just start another social networking site, but I kind of like the one I have. So why would I sell it? And, um, and, you know, at the end of the day, he convinced us that there were a whole set of products that he wanted to build, which, um, which were not being valued in the market and, uh, and that we should at least, uh, try to build those. And so if he did not have, had he not had this plan or this vision for the future, you would have just taken the money. So, you know, so I, money I, I, is pure optionality, and money is always 
in a world where you have no ideas, money is always more valuable than anything you can do with it. And you'll always take the money. I see. But you're saying his ideas were enough to convince you that, hey, at the very least, I'm not I'm I'm going to be higher than a billion here at some point. Or we or it's at least it's at least not a no brainer. We should you know, we, we can give it another six months, see how it goes. Um, and, uh, and, um, and I think, and I think, so I think having, you know, if you, if you don't have that conviction about the future, you will always sell when you get offered that billion dollars. That's sometimes really it's it. right to sell. Sometimes it's wrong, but, uh, but certainly the feedback at the time, you know, and this is, again, this, this part of the history gets obscured, but in 2006, it was when we did not sell to Yahoo, it was uniformly negative. It was you know, this is really crazy. This is what happens when you have a 22-year-old running a company. Uh, we're looking forward to this company blowing up. It will serve him right. I mean, you had, you know, just articles seething with resentment. Uh, the, the articles still are seething with resentment. It's funny how, like, outrage porn sort of grows with the internet, you know, and, uh, on its, on, uh, you know, as, as great as the internet is. But, you know, l- let me put the numbers in perspective a little bit because, you sold PayPal to eBay for $1.5 billion. You made about 55 or 60 million on that. And then if you had sold Facebook to Yahoo at that time, you would have made a hundred million. So more than you would have made on the PayPal deal. How were you personally feeling? Were you scared that this was a risk you weren't willing to take? Um, <clears throat> I was, I was somewhat scared, but I, I, you know, I, I had this, um, I had this bias that, uh, you know, we, we had, we had named our venture fund founders fund. We decided we were going to, that we were going to be, we were going to back founders in what they wanted to do. And, um, and I thought that, uh, that maybe, um, that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the right thing was to try to back the founder. I, I, you know, the, the statistical way I got some reassurance on it was there had been, there had been two other companies that had turned down $1 billion offers from Yahoo in the previous decade. eBay had been offered a billion and had turned Yahoo down, and Google had been offered a billion and had turned Yahoo down. Those were the only two that had turned it down for a billion. And, and so in both cases, those seemed like really dangerous decisions. They worked out. And so I concluded that, uh, that probably the upside was, was, was a lot more than the downside risk, given, given, that, given that history. You know, and, and also, again, in, in hindsight, of course, is great. But in, in your book, I like how you lay out very cleanly, you know, proprietary technology, network effect, economies of scale, and branding. And it seems like Facebook had all of those at the time. And plus, I'm assuming Mark Zuckerberg's ideas for the future had all of those. So it, gave, it made the decision easy using kind of these metrics. Yes. But those you, you you don't need all four of those. I think if you just have one of those, you have a you can have a great business. Uh, branding alone is is always a difficult one. Um, it's 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 a real thing. It's something I don't claim to understand. So I, I don't like investing in companies that are nothing but a brand, even though sometimes those things do work. Um, but I think uh, but I think the ones I tend to focus on are network effects, proprietary technology, or economies of scale. And um, and certainly I like proprietary technology the most because that's that sort of is, is, is the kind of thing you can really uh, uh, you can really understand from a science or technology perspective. Let's talk about the network effect for a second, because this seems in some sense the most difficult because it's sort even if you have a great technology, 
people don't really know if something's going to go viral or not until after it's gone viral. Yes. So, so I think network effects and virality are, are a little bit different. Vi- virality is a growth mechanism where customers just bring in more customers. Network effects are where the value is driven by the fact that you have a number of other people inside the network at a given time. Uh, network effect businesses are extremely valuable. Um, the paradox is that they're very hard to start because if you have something where you have a network, there's always a question, why is it valuable to the first person? If, you know, if it's really valuable once you have a million people, how will, right. you, how will you ever get the first person, the first 10, the first 100, and, and get to a million? And so, so a lot of great network effect businesses end up starting with a new kind of service that can emerge in a fairly small context. So Facebook, the initial market was Harvard University, was 10,000 people, and you went from zero to 60% market share in 10 days. And, and then you had a network among just that, that tiny community. And so you started really small, and then you um, replicated it at other colleges and then gradually, gradually expanded, uh, expanded from there. Um, and, and because a lot of these network effects start very small, um, they're not the kinds of businesses people with MBAs are inclined to try because they look too small at the beginning to be any good. Um, and so if, if, you go, if you go for a super big network effect on day one, you'll never get it uh, started because you can, never get an, you can never get the critical mass of all the people on board. Um, if you go for one that's really small, um, that's, what, that's what actually works, although it, it doesn't fit sort of a conventional business metrics. People, you know, if, if you'd pitched Facebook pre-launch, it would have been, well, this is, it's just for Harvard students. This is way too small. It's never going to be a real business. And, uh, and so uh, they often get started by people who are really inspired by certain ideas rather than ones who are um, financially driven or want to make a lot of money. Well, it's interesting because you could say Facebook had as this umbrella, this bigger vision of let's connect everybody via identity. It's almost like Facebook replaced personal web pages with Facebook, people's Facebook pages. And in a similar way, you created the network effect with PayPal using, I think, two, two ideas. One is this vision that transactions can happen uh, online through, through email or, or initially Palm Pods. But the other is you simply paid $10 to everybody who joined. Um, uh, well, well, certainly, um, certainly the, uh, the, the PayPal version of this was that we, we had to sort of accelerate the growth and, uh, and you, you try to, you, you had a viral growth driver, you had, uh, you pay $10 for everybody who signed up, but then it turned out there was this uh, network effect among, um, among, uh, uh, power sellers and power buyers on eBay, which in, late 99, early 2000 was still a tiny group. There, you know, there were maybe 20,000 major sellers and you could get to 25, 30% market share in three or four months. And so, right, so oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. And so again, uh, it was, um, you know, the great, a good, you know, if, if you're trying to create a monopoly, you can define a monopoly as a, um, as having a large market share. And so how do you get a large market share as a startup, because every startup necessarily starts very small. The answer is that you have to start with a small market. You know, uh, Facebook started with Harvard. Uh, PayPal started with eBay power sellers. These are, these are uh, 
themselves quite small markets. Amazon started with books, so not that big a market either. And you sort of, and then you can, then ideally you can build the market out in concentric circles. When I see a PowerPoint presentation in a pitch where it starts with, um, this is a market that's measured in hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars, that's very bad because it means you will never get to a large share of the market. You will always be this tiny fish in this vast ocean. Um, and that's in some sense, uh, you know, I think there was a lot that went wrong with clean technology in the last decade. But, uh, but from a business strategy perspective, one thing that went wrong with almost all the companies was the markets were way too big. Every PowerPoint, every clean tech presentation was the opposite of Facebook. It started with a market that was enormously big, and we were going to get a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of this pie. And, um, and uh, you ended up just having enormous, unpredictable comp- competition that wiped you out. I, I always call this the Chinese refrigerator rule. So somebody comes in and pitches and says, look, we've got this, we've got this brand new kind of refrigerator. And if just 1% of China buys it, we're going to be billionaires. And I've never seen anyone succeed with that kind of argument. Yeah, because if, if 1% of China buys it, then there will be 99 other Chinese companies for the other 99% of China, and they will drive the marginal profits to zero. What about something like Uber, where they start in San Francisco, so it's a small market where they're going to try to get large market share, but you can look at regionally, other companies could start up in different regions. Like, How do you deal with a, a pitch like that? Uber's a complicated case. It's certainly one that we missed. My bias is always not to invest in companies that venture capitalists themselves are prone to use. And so I suspect mm. that the venture capitalists are overvaluing Uber and undervaluing something like Airbnb because Uber is, um, is sort of a town car service. Airbnb is, um, uh, is still largely a, a cheap way to, to stay in a, in a hotel. And so the investor class is, is likely to overvalue Uber, undervalue something, something like Airbnb. But yeah, it's, it's a, Uber's a complicated one to analyze on this, but it, it, certainly, it certainly has some elements of this, uh, of this monopoly, uh, of this monopoly business in place. And, uh, and I think it's fully priced into the, into the market at this point. Yeah. I think the last valuation on the pr- private transactions were about, was about 19 billion. So yeah, I, mean, pretty again, high. I, I don't, I don't think that number itself tells you that it's overvalued or undervalued. I, um, and you know, people often, you know, the bigger the numbers are sometimes the more undervalued it is because people will, will react and say the number's so big, that's ridiculous. It was only this much, so much, so much more than it's, it was a year earlier. Uh, and so we, you, 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 you have to be careful not to base it off the, the actual valuation. But I think, um, I'm, I think it is the kind of business that uh, venture capitalists and other investors understand a little bit too well for my comfort. You know, which, which is related to the discussion of, of bubbles. And you talk about it a little in the book, but you know, in, in the late nineties, you know, PayPal was, was starting up and you also have the sense that there's a bubble that's starting to happen. And I would argue there was never a tech bubble, but it was just a financial bubble. So we, we had this like IPO bubble in late 1999, early 2000, but the tech bubble itself sort of came true. Amazon did become the biggest seller on the planet. Google did become the biggest search engine. Um, you know, it seems and like the internet a- certainly the internet as a whole certainly uh, grew largely in line with the predictions of the late nineties. Right. So it seems like, it seems like being it when everybody starts saying bubble, they're probably saying it like, like housing bubble 
um, occurred, the, the, the phrase housing bubble occurred several years before there was actual a financial bubble and all these kind of mortgage-backed obligations. So it seems like you can take advantage of when people start throwing the word bubble around. You know, I, I'm always, um, yeah, I, I would say that, um, I think, I, I do think we've had this very strange history of these different bubbles over, over recent decades. Uh, it was set, they were centered on different things at different times. So there was a, they were centered on the new economy in the nineties. They were centered on finance and housing in the two thousands. I think we have today, I think we have a government bubble that's centered on a negative real interest rates. Um, and, uh, and so probably, and, and it's very odd because it probably, you know, it probably means, you know, the, the things that were at the core of the bubbles, you, you had to be careful about, uh, you had to be careful about tech in the nineties. You had to be very careful about housing in the last decade. And perhaps, you know, you should not be keeping your, you know, retirement savings and government bonds at this, at this point. Um, because that's, that seems like it's the center of, of, of the, of the current one. Um, it's, it's, um, I, I do th- I do not think we have a bubble in technology today. I, I think the bubbles uh, required the involvement of the larger public. They, you're, you're quite right. They went on longer than, than people thought. So people were talking about a tech bubble already in 97, 98. It went on for much longer than that. Um, but I think, um, you know, I think there's no tech bubble today. There are not nearly enough IPOs. The public is, uh, is, is much less involved in this than it was in the 90s. Um, but it is, it is, it is certainly this, you know, it's, it's, it's this phenomenon where when people substitute other people's thinking for their own, and, uh, that's, that's when I think you get, uh, you get a dangerous bubble. And so housing had that characteristic in the middle of the last decade. And, uh, there, there are probably other, other forms of it uh, today. I, I, I do think it's, uh, it's been sort of the, the great, uh, macroeconomic truth of our, era has been these, these, these strange series of bubbles and busts, um, that it's important to, to try. It's been important to try to avoid. But probably the opportunity there is that this, it's these, this, uh, boom and bust cycle that has made people more and more risk averse, uh, going against your sort of idea of, uh, let's create, uh, something different, something that's like a monopoly versus something that's just an incremental improvement. That's a little safer. Well, certainly with respect to the internet and computer technology, uh, there's a case to be made that we are still suffering a hangover from the 90s, and that uh, that after after the the collapse of the dot com uh, boom or bubble, uh, um, from since 2002, we've had a we've had a 12 year long boom in technology, and people have not believed it all the way through, and so I. I, I do think that it's in the aftermath of these things that uh, that probably uh, um, you know probably the, the great internet investments have all been made in the last decade. They were not in the '90s. They've been in, in the 2002 and 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 on period. And so so uh, you know it sort of leads to two questions. You mentioned that we're we're probably in a government bubble. Where would you put your retirement money at this point? Um, it's quite. It's quite hard to say what to do. There's, there's probably I still. I, I I suspect that like the last bubbles, this one still has a ways to run. So it probably still has a few more years, a few more years to go. Um, and uh, uh, you know I think the the tag word 
for the it's it's a more pessimistic bubble. The one in the 90s was the new economy. The 2000s was the great moderation. The 2010s is secular stagnation, which you know, as, as Larry Summers has somewhat disingenuously explained to people, uh, means that you'll have negative real rates forever, and uh, and paradoxically becomes a, a reason for the stock market to um, go relentlessly higher. And so I think we've just started talking about the secular stagnation theme, which is which is the sort of strangely pessimistic way uh, the current bubble is getting uh, dressed up. And I, I, I think you're right. It will, it will go on for, for, for ways longer. Probably uh, equity markets will outperform fixed income. And I think the strange ending of this bubble will be that it, it will be the one where you should not be in fixed income. And every bear market in the U.S. in the last 35 years the correct thing has been to be long fixed income. Shorting stocks is always hard. Going long fixed income has been much easier. And I think at the end of the current bull market, um, you do not want to be in fixed income. And so you want to be in, in, in other things. Um, the, uh, the, the, the way I, the, the macroeconomic way I frame it is that the two, big, the two big trends that I see in this decade are a war on cash and a war on credit. The war on cash involves these negative interest rates, 0% uh, nominal rates, negative real rates, quantitative easing, all the central banks printing money. The war on credit involves um, not allowing the banks to lend all this money out that's being printed, tightened regulation, the Basel III stuff, uh, Dodd-Frank in the U.S. The war on cash and the war on credit to first approximation cancel each other out. So the government's printing a lot of money and it's prohibiting the banks from lending it out. But uh, the nuanced thing is I think you want to be far from cash and far from credit because that's what war has been declared on. And I think the war will go on for a long time. So the, that, that's, the, that's, why I like, that's why I like venture capital. It's not, I don't know if it's an asset class for everybody, but, but personally I have probably you know, 80% of my net worth is, is in um, venture capital, startups, things of that sort because it's very far from cash. And it's very far from credit. It's not levered, and it's uh, it's it's not cash-like. I mean, maybe you could argue some. You know, even though there hasn't been a lot of IPOs, like some tech definitely is is going to ride further in the next decade. Uh, some biotech, possibly. So you know, perhaps that's a way to to fight the war on cash. Yeah. So I, I I like I like companies that are extremely opaque and not measurable at this point. So. Uh, Unlevered companies are ones where you have no idea what's going on, and biotech is probably the most unlevered sector. Um, and so it's, we're, in, we're in a world where people probably overvalue things they can measure very precisely, and the things that are hard to measure have been undervalued, and they have outperformed for some time. This is you know, Google's outperformed. Amazon is a strange company, but it's, it certainly has outperformed in, in, in large part because people said they had no idea what its value was, and therefore... Um, they systematically underestimated it for quite a while now. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. 
Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. So it's interesting, you know, in the beginning of the interview, you, you, you mentioned today you were looking at um, the comparing notes on a financial technology related to the payday loan industry. And the payday loan industry, of course, uh, fights that war against lending. Like it's a, it, it's this, it's a, a massive, uh, kind of alternative banking industry that, uh, maybe a third of America makes use of because of, uh, the, the difficulties in traditional banking. Do you find yourself looking at alternative banking systems? I, I think it's an interesting area to look at, um, with the one big caveat that it's, it is a sector where you're fighting this, this regulatory headwind, and that's something one should not underestimate. And it's especially problematic for startups because regulations are always uh, disproportionately tough on, on smaller companies. And so I think, I, th- I think you, have a, you have an industry that's static, that needs to be rethought in one way or another. At the same time, it's also an industry that's getting regulated more and more. And so, so it's an area we're looking at, but, but we're, we're still fairly cautious about. What about with biotech? I mean, I, I liked in the, in the book, um, you mentioned um, the opposite of Moore's law, which is E-Room's law, where uh, drugs approved per billion dollars, you know, goes in half every nine years since 1950. So biotech, even though it's sort of hard to understand, there's this kind of negative government regulation aspect that is is driving up the cost of uh, drugs approved. Yes. Um, yeah, so certainly biotech has been in a, it's been in a bad zone, I would argue, for 20 years. Um, <clears throat> I think there was there was a boom in it in the in the 80s and early 90s, but it's probably been a 20 year long um, period of of underperformance. Um, the question, you know, I, I think the the regulatory question. I'm 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 always interested in it just from a contrarian perspective because it's. Like it's even more out of fashion now than say clean tech is, which I think is also actually worth looking at since it's it's crashed probably ninety to ninety five percent from from the highs in '08, and biotech mm-hmm. is even more out of fashion I would argue than than clean tech in in 2014. Um, it's um, the 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 regulatory story that uh, that I I think is worth thinking through is are we at a point where the FDA is going to have to be less tight? Because you know we've been in a world where the FDA has had um, has had a um, an iron grip not just on drugs in the U.S. but really worldwide because you've had this worldwide deference to the FDA by all sorts of other countries. And so you know so it's always this odd thing where the U.S. is just 23% of world GDP, but yet the U.S. FDA has somehow um, been the gating agency for drug approval worldwide. And there is, I think, this question whether. Um, we are going to see some real alternative markets created in China, maybe with medical devices in India. Will you start to see medical tourism? Is there going to be more regulatory arbitrage in this? And um, and will the even just the mere prospect of regulatory arbitrage uh, push the FDA to be less restrictive? And so, 
And so even though you're dealing with incredibly tough regulations in the biotech space, um, the, the bullish case is that I don't think they can get much worse. And I think it's always, you want to look yeah, at not, and, the, absolute, the, not the absolute level of the regulations, but it's the first derivative. Are they getting worse? Are they getting better? We have regulatory headwinds in finance. In biotech, I think it can't get any worse. And I think there is a case that it, it may get better, although it may take a while. Yeah, and also the, the aging population would suggest that ultimately the FDA has to approve more drugs. People are going to demand it. That, that's what would happen in a, in a rational society. Of course, you know, the, the, the worry would be that an aging population becomes even more risk-averse, even more scared, even more willing to um, um, allow uh, regulators to do stupid things. Now, so, so in, in the book, one chapter that I really liked was, was titled Secrets. And it's sort of like this idea that there are things that are completely unknown and that are kind of secrets to us as a society, but the individuals who uncover those secrets will be able to build monopolies around the businesses they start uh, 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 based on what they discover. So, so this kind of veers in a different direction, but you, you, know, you, you approach this again from a societal standpoint, but what individual characteristics can someone develop now uh, to help them uh, basically be able to uncover secrets? Um, well, I, I, I think a part of it is just to have a, uh, a passion for certain ideas. If you're, if you're, if there's a set of things you are really interested in thinking about, it's you, you keep working at it. And, um, and I think, I think we are in a, I think the, the larger point I'd like to make in this chapter is just that there are a lot of secrets that exist. There are a lot of things we could figure out if we worked at it. Um, it's not, um, and so I think one, you know, there's this, uh, there's a self-fulfilling part of this where if you believe that there are secrets to find, then you will work at them and you will be someone to find them. If you do not believe there are any secrets, if you think everything's been discovered um, or is impossibly hard for you to figure out, then you won't figure things out. So I think there's a big self-fulfilling prophecy aspect uh, aspect to this. Uh, the, the example I give in my book is a, of, of, of Giles, the, uh, the, the Princeton mathematician who proved Fermat's last theorem. And, um, you know, he, he spent close to a decade working on this, but he believed he could prove it. And that motivated him to work on it and to ultimately, ultimately prove it. Um, and so it might have, it's hard to know ex ante whether it's possible or not, but if you didn't think it was possible, um, if you didn't think it was possible for you to discover something new, then you would never be the person to discover that, that new thing. Right. So let's say that's step one. So let's say, for instance, I believe I could be an Olympic level uh, javelin thrower. I'm going to start I don't working. Like, I don't like that example because that's too, that's too conventional. And we can, we, can, we can probably measure your abilities and we can figure out within 30 seconds whether it's even within the ballpark. But, 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 but sure. Well, which yeah. is not, by the way. <laughs> Sorry? Which it's not, by the way, I can't be, but I, I'm just giving as an example because like take the example, the Princeton example with Vermont's theorem, um, he clearly knew what direction he should work in to, to solve this secret, or he had an idea, a rough idea. How could people cultivate within themselves the ability to even work beyond the step? Let's say they're optimistic and they believe they can uncover secrets or they, they, they buy into the idea that there's secrets to be uncovered. How can they still cultivate these personality characteristics to, to work further at it? Well, I think it's I think the starting point is that one is um, extremely passionate about 
some set of ideas or some approach to doing things. And it's, um, it's best for it to be something that's, that, you know, if it's something where you have a lot of very talented people working on it already, this may be more difficult. So I, I do think it's probably hard to discover secrets in super string theory, unless you're, you know, a first rate mathematician or physicist. Um, but I think there are, I think most fields are not like physics. They're not like mathematics. They're, they're actually, uh, ones where the frontier is relatively nearby and, uh, and it, it requires, um, it just requires you to, uh, to, uh, to really, uh, approach a problem in a slightly different way. And, 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 you know, one, one shortcut that I've often used is to look at, um, you know, what are things that are conventionally believed? What are things where everyone's focused on approaching a problem in a certain way? Um, and so, you know, we have, um, you know, like, I, I think, I think it would be fat, I think an incredibly important problem to work on is finding a cure for Alzheimer's. And, um, there's a conventional approach that I suspect is way overexplored, which is around beta amyloids, which are these plaques that build up and, um, um, they seem to be a marker. It's not at all clear they're causally connected. Uh, and there are many other approaches that, uh, do not involve that. And so, um, so as a starting point, uh, if one were working on this problem, you'd look at, you try to look at something where for some reason people had not explored it and that was promising. And, um, and uh, if it's something that's conventionally explored that everyone says is the way to go, that's probably very crowded. That's not a very promising one to look at. It, it seems like in your career, you what you've done a lot is combine areas. So for instance, like take PayPal as an example, email was a, a kind of well-covered area, but then the idea of doing transactions online was still very scary in the internet. Yes. And by combining them, you were able to yes. develop a whole new industry. Yeah, I, I certainly think anything interdisciplinary in our society is is quite underrated. You know, we we you know I've, I've talked at length about the sort of education bubble and I'm sort of a high a, a, a critic of a lot of what's been going on with the universities in our society, much much like I believe you are. Um, but yes. I, I think uh, one of the things that's very perverse about the current university system is that it pushes people towards arcane specialization. And anything interdisciplinary is seen as very bad. And I think people avoid interdisciplinary fields in college because they end up stepping on lots of people's toes. And so it's always seen as politically dangerous. But, uh, but I think a lot of the interesting ideas will come from the intersection of, you know, computer science and biology. This will be the next uh, revolution in genomics or the intersection of computer science and transportation. And this will be companies like Uber or Lyft or you know, or maybe the self-driving car. Um, and so I, th I think, um, I think these sort of intersection fields, these interdisciplinary fields are, uh, are extremely fruitful, uh, areas to explore. You, you know, and it's interesting too, with like, with like Uber, you have, it's not just that it's a car service, uh, but it's a, it's a logistics software where you have this labor force. And then on the other side, you have a demand for this labor force. So right now they use it for cars, but they could also use it for doing your laundry or whatever. So. Uh, they, they, yeah, oh. no, it's, 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 um, so yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a, yes, it's a complex logistics problem and then applied at least initially to this very specific, um, you know, uh, a building a um, 
two-sided market of both uh, drivers and uh, and passengers um, on a city by city basis. So 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 Peter, I have I have two final questions, and I also want to kind of again um, tell you what I think of the the book. But the one final question is um, obviously in the in the show Silicon Valley, the Peter Gregory character is nothing like you, but is clearly based on you, particularly his anti-college stance and, and, and so on. What, what did you think of that when you first saw his character on the show? Well, you know, it's, 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 uh, I, I actually think, um, I think, I think it's on the whole, it's actually kind of flattering. And, uh, did they ask the you? Show, no, they, they never asked. They never asked. Of course not. Um, uh. um you know, the, the claim is that it has no connection with me. And so, so of course they, they would, they wouldn't ask, but, uh, but uh, but no, I, I actually think the show did a did a is, it, did a. Uh, I, I I think it was it, it was very well written. It was funny. Um, I don't think it was that hostile to Silicon Valley, and I think it certainly gets interpreted at this time as as quite positive. You know, the Social Network movie was much more negative in intent, um, but even that uh, got seen as a as a positive, inspiring movie. People, it was meant to uh, it was intended to make Mark Zuckerberg look bad. But when people in Silicon Valley watched it, they saw, wow, it was impressive how hard Zuckerberg worked, how passionate he was, and that's really inspiring. And so I think we are in this cultural moment where um, all these things about Silicon Valley um, will be given a very positive valence. And I think uh, I think Silicon Valley show is generally positive. Social Network was meant to be negative, but it's like the Oliver Stone movie, uh, Wall Street, which uh, he meant as an attack on Wall Street, but it actually inspired all the investment bankers in the 80s. Right, right. That's very true. Actually, a lot of people sort of looked up to Gordon Gecko, despite the fact that he was a clear criminal uh, by the end of the movie. And they, at they least in Oliver Stone, five book. minutes before the end, it was when everyone was celebrating they, before they went to jail. And uh, and yeah, uh, and and Stone said, you know, he'd wanted to make it a an anti Wall Street movie, but uh, but people uh, people thought Wall Street was a good thing in the eighties and nineties, and so they interpreted it positively. And I think we're we're in a point in time in history where people are looking at Silicon Valley in that, in that sort of way. And so I think, I think all these cultural representations are tend to get interpreted in a, in a really positive way. So the, the other question I have is, so you're, you and I are both, uh, ranked similar in chess. You're, you're a, a chess master. We're, we're around the same age. How do you feel? I, I, I know what it takes to get to that rating in chess. There was, there's a, there was a lot of work involved when you were younger. How do you think that translated into your later success? You know, it's 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 always hard to know exactly how it translates. Uh, I mean, I is I think chess is always a little bit of this unique uh, combination of art and a science and a sport, some sort of weird intersection of those those three those three things. I I do think um, I do think it there are sort of chess metaphors I like. There's you know there's a, the the Capablanca metaphor that you know you must begin by studying the end game. That you you have, want to think about where you're going in business. Uh, you know, uh, whoever moves, it's the first mover in chess is white, and white gives you about a one third of a pawn advantage, which is a t- so you have a tiny edge by moving white by going first. But the last mover, the person who says checkmate, uh, that's uh, that's really decisive. And so I think in in business as in chess, uh, you want to think about um, you know, being a first mover is a tactic. Uh, being a last mover is, is is the goal, and that's 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 a that's a worthwhile thing to think about. So I think there are all these these ways that it uh, it carries over. I um I it is um 
I do think that, uh, um, you know, I, I do think it's a, it's an incredibly beautiful game. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, I, I, I worry that it has, it's, it's, uh, cultural valence has gone down some as a result of computers getting better than people, uh, people with, uh, deep blue beating Kasparov back in 1997 is sort of a, a key turning point, but I still, uh, still really enjoy playing, uh, playing occasionally. Yeah, no, I, I tend to play online probably at least 10 games a day. It's a, it's an addiction. I'm addicted to the internet chess club. Yeah. Uh, I helped build the internet chess club back in 1992. Wow. So, well, I'm, it's, it's yeah, I'm a little bit, I'm your drug dealer. <laughs> so, so Peter Thiel, you wrote zero to one notes on startups or how to build the future. I like the, the use of the word or here because you basically tie the future to startups. Was that intentional? I, I've never seen or in a subtitle. Um, yes. Well, it's, it's, you, it's, it's certainly, um, it's certainly a subset of how to build the future. Um, and it's, it's a way to, um, and it's because the book is meant both for the narrow audience in Silicon Valley of people who are actually working on startups. And then it's also meant for everybody who's concerned about future, which I think should be everybody in, in our, in our society who's, uh, uh, Who's, who's, who's thoughtful because uh, the future is something of, of concern to all of us. We're, we're all going to live in it and we want to make it a better future than the present, not a worse one. You know, uh, what about, and, and I, I don't mean to veer off, off at this, but what about someone who's like 50 years old, he's been in a cubicle all his life or her life and now wants to start something new. Do you think that this also applies to them? Like they can learn the skill sets needed to, to move into the future? You know, I, th I think it's always possible to do something new in our society. You know, you can always you can always start over. You can always you know move to a new city, start a new career. Uh, you know, it's it's often difficult at different points in time because maybe people have large mortgages, they have large debt, sort of various obligations of one sort or another. But uh, but I do think uh, I don't think there's any specific time or uh, place where 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 you're limited it's uh, there there's certain points where maybe it's a little, you have somewhat more flexibility than other points but but there's nothing automatic about it and and certainly you know if you're 50 years old uh you have you have a life expectancy of at least 30 years ahead of you and so uh you know you're you 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 know you sh you should you should it would be like crazy to pretend that your life is uh, almost over yeah, it's very, very good advice. So, so zero to one notes on startups or how to build the future. And, uh, I, I honestly think this is going to be a best-selling book. It's a, it's a really great book. Uh, Peter Thiel, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, James. It's been a thanks, lot Peter. of fun. Yeah, same here. Bye. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.